0: The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official
1: U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code, The Gist. And by QuickBooks. If you work for yourself, try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses, estimate your federal quarterly taxes, and more see what QuickBooks self-employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial at tryselfemployed.com slash the gist
0: it's Monday, May 18th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I got to tell you this biker gang story. It's like right out of the 1970s. You got your banditos. They think of Texas as their state. But the scimitars, they ain't backing down. The Cossacks, oh man, you're talking anti-bandito. You're talking Cossacks. You got your leathernecks. You got your cotton mouths. It's a veritable Donnybrook. We haven't even mentioned the Pagans, the Outlaws, the Iron Horsemen, and, of course, the Hells Angels. The Hells Angels are real. This ain't no Sons of Anarchy TV show, but their name recognition seems to be slipping. Do you think the Hells Angels have a brand manager who's, you know, raising some red flags up in corporate? Guys, guys... Our age cohort knows where the Hell's Angels. But do college-educated consumers, the 18 to 34, know about the Hell's Angels? How are we doing in the demo? When you think Harley-fueled mayhem, do you think Hell's Angels? Or, you know, some kid who just watched a funnier or Die video on the YouTube, does he think of the Hell's Angels? It's Hell's Angels. Is it top of mind? Guys! time was, the Hells Angels met danger. Now more people die of high cholesterol at a Rolling Stones concert than die from the Hells Angels. That counts. That's real. All right, I'm just asking the questions, guys. You don't have to put the rope around my midsection, guys. You don't don't have to drag me down this country road. I told my friends at McKinsey this was a modern company. Guys, don't prove me wrong. This does not disrupt the biker gang space, you dousing me with motor oil and flicking your lighters. All right, guys, inside the box thinking here. Guys, on the show today, well, biker gang, that's a natural segue to what we're going to talk about, Beanie Babies, and in the spiel, speaking of scams where the stuffing comes out, college diploma mills, a just-vestigation, seriously, a just-vestigation, but first, yeah, we know, if you're a huge Beanie Baby fan, when I said stuffing comes out, you were like, actually, that wasn't stuffing, those were little pellets made of styrofoam-type substance, we also know you probably lost a ton, well... Here now, at least, you can figure out why. You do whatever it takes to make sure your business runs efficiently. But constant trips to the post office can get in the way. With Stamps.com, you'll be able to spend less time at the post office and more time growing your business. It makes shipping easy. You could use your own comprinter. Comprinter. It's a computer and printer. I'm going to say it anyway. Don't take this out. You could use your own comprinter. That's how much time means to you. You say words like computer and printer and you smash them together. You're not, you are not. You don't have time for things like and. So you could use your comprinter. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter in any package. They've got a digital scale. You'll get the exact postage you needed. That number will come right up on your comprinter. It'll help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. And if I know you, busy man saying comprinter, your class of mail is always the best class of mail. Right now, use the promo code THEGIST for a special offer. What's the offer? It's this. It's a no-risk trial. It's a $110 bonus offer. It includes that digital scale I spoke of. It includes up to $55 in free postage. It includes license, to use the word, comprinter. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in The Gist. That's Stamps.com. Enter The Gist. So the story of Ty Warner, the man behind Beanie Babies, and you know what Beanie Babies are, but you might not realize how huge a thing they were. The story of Ty Warner is exactly the kind of story that you didn't know you would care about, but then you do care about, largely due to the talents of Zach Bissonette. He's written The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, Mass Delusion, and The Dark Side of Cute. And this is the kind of book that has sentences. So you think, all right, it's about Beanie Babies. How much do I care? Remember that subtitle, The Masked Illusion and the Dark Side of Cute. It has sentences like this. In 1880, a German polio survivor named Apollonia Margaret Steiff used the proceeds from teaching zither lessons to buy a sewing machine. She started making elephant-shaped pin cushions as gifts for friends and relatives. So it goes far, it goes wide, it goes deep. Zach is here. Hello, Zach. Hey, how are you? How'd you get into Beanie Babies? So I was in
1: college. I remembered them, of course, you know, from when I was in middle school and they were yeah. kind of at the, at the height of the craze. Um, and I was in college and I was I, I went to auctions because I was, I was furnishing my place in Amherst, Massachusetts. And I was in an auction one day and sitting at the back of the room all alone were these big rubber-made containers full of these mint-conditioned Beanie Babies. And the Beanie Babies themselves, obviously, are not that interesting. But what was interesting about it was the conviction of whoever had assembled this collection of, you know, five or six hundred Beanie Babies that they would one day be of great value. They were all preserved with tag protectors. Some of the bears were in these individual lucite containers. And then there were all these spreadsheets and checklists about how much each one was worth in 1998 and which ones the collector had. And hundreds of hours had yeah. obviously been devoted to this collection, and the whole thing was worth. I think you know, I think it sold for less than two hundred dollars. Less than
0: two hundred and in ninety-eight. It would have sold for
1: you know well into the thousands. Thousands. I mean thousands and thousands, right. thousands of dollars. And I just became very curious about how people could have gotten this so wrong. And this was kind of right in the wake of the housing bubble, so I was very focused on trying to understand like how people can be so wrong about what has value and what doesn't have value, and so. I got home from the auction, and I started Googling Beanie Babies, and there, wasn't, there had never been kind of a post-mortem on the craze about what had happened. What there were were this kind of random assemblage of facts that were very interesting, sort of, sort of very interesting right off the bat. And I'll, I'll just give you a few of the ones that jumped out to me right in the beginning. All right. In like 1998, Beanie Babies were about 10% of eBay's sales eBay disclosed in the risk factors of its early SEC filings its dependency on the Beanie Baby market.
0: It is not too far to think that there'd be no eBay without Beanie Babies. And in fact, yes. Meg Whitman, early CEO, worried about being overly dependent on Beanie, right. Beanie Babies. Right, and, and
1: later said that, that, that Beanie Babies were, were absolutely instrumental to the growth of that of that site because it lured people who were not tech geeks into e-commerce to buy something that they couldn't get locally. A lot of people don't don't remember that in the early days of e-commerce, it was not growing as rapidly as people thought it was. And if you go back and look at at stories from 1996, 1997, there's a lot of stuff about, you know, e-commerce holding more potential than profit. Yeah. And in fact,
0: you know, E.B., as you point out in the book, and fine, this is a digression, but this is the joy of the book, that... You know, eBay had this foundation myth, and it was a myth about Pez collectors. Yes, right. So the own it was really a very unheartwarming trade site for like computer geeks. Right? Yeah, but, and so they said, "Oh, it was for my girlfriend's Pez collection." Right. A PR person yeah.
1: at the company came yeah. up with that,
0: and the lie about Pez collectors came true, but it wasn't about Pez collectors. It became, well, it about, it beanie became babies, about Beanie Babies because yeah. as
1: soon as they started, just to to back up a little bit, so you know they were trying to get press for the website and. Pierre Omidyar was trying to tell reporters, you know, that that eBay was his grand vision to create friction-free markets. And people were like, who gives a crap? So this PR person he'd hired said, you know, let's drop that story and let's tell people that you created eBay because you wanted your girlfriend to have a place to buy and sell Pez dispensers. Because, and she said, you know, no one wants to hear about this genius with his vision for friction-free markets. People want to hear he did it for his girlfriend. So they started telling people that. It wasn't true, but it sort of became this viral phenomenon. And in the kind of reflexive nature of these things, you know, the lie kind of created this thing where – eBay did take off among toy collectors. The biggest of those were Beanie Baby collectors. Well, let's go
0: to the Beanie Baby and its foundation myth. Ty, the letters T-Y uh, in a heart are on every Beanie Baby, and that stands for, that's the guy's real name. That's maybe the last thing real about him that will say. <laughs> Ty Warner. Tell me about this guy. How did he get into the plush toy business? So his father
1: was a traveling salesman for a company called Dakin, which was a big plush company in the 60s, 70s, and, and right on into the early 80s. And Ty, his son, was kind of a, 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 um, kind of a juvenile delinquent and not, not someone who really had any great indication that he was going anywhere. He went to Kalamazoo College for a year, studied drama, dropped out, went to California to try to become an actor. That didn't go anywhere. His father said to him, you know, you know, you should, you should come and work for me as a toy salesman. And so Ty did that, and it was this kind of alchemy of Ty Warner where he went from, up until then, someone no one would have thought would be successful. As soon as Ty Warner met with plush toys, he became this just prodigy and the, the greatest toy salesman anyone had ever seen.
0: The greatest, and among his personality traits, uh, <laughs> vanity, obsession, cruelty, but also this insight that is preternatural and he was able to tell you what's a hit and what's not a hit. And he, you, I, it takes a driven guy like this to create the markets that Beanie Babies became. When I got home from that auction and I started trying
1: to find people who would, you know, and I'd find one person who'd work to take and say, did you know anything about Ty? And he would, from another one, you know, one of the first people – I called was a guy who had been Ty's sales supervisor when he was at at Dakin, and it was always interesting to me that you could call people, cold call them about Ty Warner and people who hadn't seen him in 40 years in some cases, and they would instantly just have this pent-up vat of venom to spill. So I called this guy Paul Roach, and I was, right, Paul Roach, and I said, you know, I'm doing a, just wondering, you know, you, you worked with Ty Warner – And he said, well, if you're looking for someone to say a bunch of nasty things about Ty Warner, you're going to have to find someone else. And then he paused and he said, which shouldn't be too hard. And then he proceeded to, you know, talk to me at some length. I mean, Ty was someone who, who rubbed people very, very badly. So often in funny ways, you know. I don't. I don't think he's a bad guy, but um, an interesting guy.
0: Yeah, he might be a bad guy. I mean, he was pretty cruel to uh, his, for instance, his all but stepdaughters, uh, taking credit away for them from them when he invented a Beanie Baby. <laughs> yeah, the,
1: based on their design. Yeah, for the ghost. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Just to tell that story, which is a funny story. He was at dinner. One of the things that Ty did. He 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 lived with his girlfriend and her daughters from a previous relationship, and both daughters and the girlfriend you know, remembered that the topic of how to make the Beanie Babies cuter, it was all he ever talked about, all that they ever talked about. It dominated their lives. And so they would, they would be at dinner and he would say, well, we can't eat until we come up with a name for this frog. So one day they were at dinner and he was talking about that. He wanted to do a ghost Beanie Baby who didn't know how to do it. And uh, one of his girlfriend's daughters drew a picture on the, on, on a paper tablecloth. I think it was like a Boston market and Ty you know, tore it off the table, put it in his pocket, went to the factory in China and did this this beanie baby and put his girlfriend's daughter's name on the hang tag. And it said, designed by Jenna Boldebuck. And she was so excited. She was in second grade at the time. It was really cool. And then a few months later, he took her name off the hang tag. And and, and Ty, Ty's g- girlfriend was just so puzzled by that, that someone who by that point, you know, was making, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year. You know, and yet could not leave a second grader's name on the
0: hashtag. at one point he's what the two hundred something richest man in America, and this is right. This is right before the dot com boom, which isn't incidental. No, but w- he's extremely successful. He's worth about two
1: billion dollars. And one of the things that intrigued me, speaking of the of, of the dot com boom, a lot of the entrepreneurial success stories that you read about, almost all of them now, are about people who got rich through liquidity events, you Mm -hmm. know, through taking a company public or selling a business. I find that a little bit less interesting in some ways. It's interesting in its own way. But Ty never sold the company, never sold even any stake in the company, has run it the entire time since he started in his condo and then invested the money in real estate. I liked the kind of Horatio Alger story of this guy. Ty's worth about $2 billion all of it is the product of making beanie babies at the factories in China for 40 or 50 cents wholesaling them for $2.50 taking a you know paying a 10% sales commission and there's very few stories about sort of tremendous fortunes that are made that way anymore it's kind of a it's yeah. kind of a different
0: model Tai made out really well a lot of people didn't there's this mania going on that he took advantage of. So yes. he, was he didn't create it. He didn't exactly create the idea of scarcity, but he took advantage of it. What's the best way to manage a sensation, do you think, when you have a sensation like this?
1: I think it's impossible to manage. I think one of the things Ty did well that kept it going was, and, and this really gets into the distribution, kind of the, the retail side of the book, but Ty always hated the idea of having his his Beanie Babies in big box stores. He didn't want them in big chains. He didn't want them. He, he, he told people he didn't. He had this, like, terror of seeing them in bins. He wanted them to have this kind of mystique. So he only sold them to, like, mom-and-pop gift shops. And then at the height of it, he decided he, he, he decided that he would only ship each store 36 of each style per month. And so the result of that was that you would never go into a store and see a huge stack of Beanie Babies, because he wouldn't ship them that way. People didn't know that he was sending them to tens of thousands of stores. One of the things that was funny to me, and and, um, Charles McKay, I mean, talked about this, you know, in in the sort of seminal first book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, that when a speculative bubble ends, there will always be people, everyone involved. And this was an annoying thing with book and an interesting thing who will, you know, so why did it end? And they will point to these really tangential things. And so a collector actually called me the other day, someone I interviewed for the book, and he, we talked for like an hour. Couldn't get him off the phone. Nice guy. And he was saying, you know, well, I just think, you know, what really killed it was the counterfeiting. And I said to him, oh, so, so if there hadn't been counterfeiting of Beanie Babies, what, they would still be 10% of eBay sales and, and your peanut royal blue elephant would be worth what a Picasso's worth? I mean, what did you think was going to happen? You know, and then a lot of the people at Thai, even former executives say, you know, well, if Thai hadn't just kept coming out with so many styles. And so I think that to avoid realizing that they got caught up in something that was stupid and intrinsically destined to end badly – People always point to any external factor or some dysfunction in the marketplace. Right. And so I tried to report on sort of the, the, the mechanics of it and what, pe- what was happening, what people saw as what was happening, while still really trying to keep it clear that this thing ended because it was dumb. Right, And, and that's the short answer. And that is true of every bubble. And so, I mean, it, it, it makes me laugh because it's like if you read a lot of stuff about, you know, why did the housing bubble end? The housing bubble ended because home prices got completely out of control to the point where, you know, they couldn't keep going up like that because no one would be able to afford a house. Didn't make any
0: sense. And so people don't want to admit that. Right. And to give you some idea of how far the phenomenon went, when McDonald's, the most restaurants, especially then, it was a much healthier company, decided to put a Beanie Baby in a Happy Meal, a teeny Beanie Baby, it was a nightmare. They couldn't possibly meet demand
2: i got pinky then i got pinky i got pinky and patty in the same
0: week What, vanessa catch something teeny beanie baby I just
1: now at mcdonald's your kids can get teeny beanie baby, i talked to someone it. who had been who had worked in in marketing for mcdonald's at the time who, who had run their pr department and and i was talking to her and i i asked her about you know how, how crazy it had been and she said you know Whenever I see my old colleagues, you know, like reunion lunches or whatever, all I have to do is say teeny baby babies and they say, oh, my God, shoot me. (laughs) Um, The way she put it, she said it devastated the stores like a lot of McDonald's locations had to change, you know, they couldn't answer the phone because they were ringing off the hook. So they would just have a voicemail message that said, hello, McDonald's. We have the moose and the elephant. Um, <laughs> there was, there was a woman, Tamara D Maldonado, who, um, who I think worked at a McDonald's and was arrested for stealing, I think like $10,000 worth of teeny beanies from the warehouse. And then had also stolen credit card numbers to buy Beanie Babies, She was sentenced to probation with a special stipulation that she stay away from beanie babies for two years. And she told the court, she said, you know, it was like a drug. Once I became addicted, I couldn't stop. I I went to West Virginia and I and I interviewed in a maximum security prison, a guy who murdered a coworker over a beanie baby debt. And and the first thing he said to me was, you know, so those beanie babies, are those still hot? And I said, you know, no. And then he was explaining how he had gotten into it with the Millennium Bear, which he had, I think, bought for twenty and flipped for hundred or something. And I said, no, that's worth 25 cents now. And he said, oh, well, you know, I've been in here since 1999, so I haven't really kept up with it.
0: Yeah. So for all the people that lost money, maybe killed a guy over it, for the amount that the beanie market cratered, how did Ty's fortunes uh, wind up?
1: He ended up spectacularly rich. He's worth about $2 billion. He has a $150 million home that he built in Montecito, California. And I was actually there couple months ago for something else. So we drove you know, over to it, and there's this huge wall. And this is kind of the fine line between biographer and stalker. <laughs> but I was kind of, you know- Well, I...
0: now that you actually got the book contract, exactly. you're on I that side it's of okay. the wall.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I went over the, if, if you kind of go on a hill across the street, you can see over the very high wall. And there was like a gorilla statue in the yard, all of these little sheep statues. Ty wasn't there. There was no one there except there was one man polishing the wooden gorilla
0: statue the great beanie baby bubble mass delusion and the dark side of cute zach Bissonette tells the whole story tells it completely faithfully does not polish ty's gorilla in these pages but gives you a good account of how the hell that happened thank you zach thanks this is fun if you work for yourself Try QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses so you can easily track what you spend for work and what you spend on yourself. It also takes the guesswork out of your estimated federal quarterly taxes. So come tax time, and all the time is tax time, isn't it? You know how much money to set aside for uh, that guy with the beard and the I want you slogan. Yeah, Uncle Sam. And that also means you know how much stays in your pocket. So explore what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you with a free 30-day trial try selfemployed.com slash the gist And now the spiel What's the matter you? Today New York Times lead story fake diplomas real cash a net of made-up schools, Exact, which is A-X-A-C-T, so exact, except spelled as if you didn't go to a real college. The Times documented how this company fooled some people into thinking that online universities were real, was also a willing accomplice ...of other resume exaggerators, and they used high-pressure sales tactics to put a lot of people who could barely afford it into a lot of debt. The Times went on to list 370 institutions that aren't quite what they seem. I've been going to the websites of these schools, some colleges, mostly high schools, and what I found would be hilarious if it weren't for the many victims. So, Agzac, the Pakistani company at the center of these virtual diploma mills, attacked the premise of the article, and the reporter, Declan Walsh, saying... One aspect that stands very clear from all of this is that a personal grudge has been displayed by the writer. Parallels laded with negativity have been drawn with the portrayal of positive Pakistan and also including references to the Silicon Valley as if offering world-class facilities to employees is something we should be ashamed about when it is our pride. Okay, that I'm just reading what their defense of their company was. And Exact also called the Times account baseless, substandard, maligning, defamatory, and based on false accusations, and merely a figment of imagination. And it would seem that Exact knows from figments. Let's go on a college visit, shall we? You don't have to even leave your chair. Come, follow me. First stop is Columbiana University, not affiliated with Dart Yelverd. Okay, that's Dart Yelverd's a school I made up. But Columbiana, it seems to be a school that exact made up. It is in the exact network, though not in the network of reality. Columbiana's website boasts of something called Columbiana Connect. Let me read the description to you. Our participants are carefully selected to achieve a balanced cohort in order to ensure a mix of best mix of syndicate groups so that you can share practical experiences of everyone anytime, anywhere. Yeah, so go to Colombiana to get that. Or go to Green Lake University. There is no space between the green and the lake, but the L in lake is capitalized. Or, as happened several times on the Green Lake website, it's not capitalized. Green Lake's, quote, expert faculty includes a guy named Samuel Jackson. A testimonial from a student says, With the right knowledge, I've been able to turn my passion into profession. That quote is attributed to Gracie Allen. Also listed under faculty is Dr. Tiara Dane. PhD, computer studies associate professor. A web search for Tiara Dane turned up only a Great Dane, the dog, a Great Dane named Tiara. But an image search of the person they said was Dr. Dane shows that she is available from a stock photo site. You may know her as, quote, pretty businesswoman looking at camera. Or maybe posing for stock photos is just a common gig with the faculty of these many, many exact schools. For instance... At Western Advanced Central University, things really are whack. Let's meet the renowned permanent faculty members of WAC University. There's George S. Kirkland, permanent faculty, School of Business and Management, also known in stock photo parlance as Portrait of Middle-Aged Businessman in Suit. There's Jennifer Henshaw, who's permanent faculty at the School of Education, also known as Portrait of Casual Young Woman Smiling. Listen. To get on the permanent faculty in the field of education, can't be too casual about that. It's given her short shrift. Leo Chidley, who's with the School of Natural Sciences, you might know him as Portrait of Confident Man Sitting in Office. Yeah, of course he is. He's permanent faculty. Why wouldn't he be confident? There's Jonathan Dalton at the School of Criminal Justice. He's one of many, quote, business people having a meeting or workshop with presentation in office. There's Candy Schoen, School of Applied Arts or a Portrait of a Confident Businesswoman with a diaries to ending in conference room. And then there is Maria Fleck, who's on fleek. You might know her in the stock photo world as woman standing in front of her colleagues. Not very giving, Maria Fleck. But she's also pictured elsewhere on the Internet as... 82 year old French woman who has never had plastic surgery and credits her young looks to eating lots of watermelon. Then there's Richard D. Casella. He's at the School of Occupational Safety. No, he's not. He's smiling, young businessman using his digital tablet at the office. Richard D. Casella is also the exact name of a faculty member at Riverbanks University. Totally different picture. Riverbanks University wasn't on the New York Times list of the 370 fake schools run by Exact, yet its website is exactly similar to these other ones. I would not trust the safety of my occupation to a Riverbanks grad, is what I'm saying. Which brings me to Baytown University. Baytown offers a fake degree in the performing arts. This makes no sense to me. The point of getting a degree in the performing arts is that it's really fun to get, but is virtually worthless as a credential. Why get the credential and not go through the joy of, you know, smoking pot backstage with the rest of the cast of The Crucible? Or finding out that if you've got your heart on Dream Laurie from Oklahoma, you're not going to get a lot of competition from Dream Curly, if you know what I'm saying? Why get a degree in trombone unless you can actually play the trombone? Also, Baytown University, why is the schedule of upcoming events entirely stolen from events that are actually upcoming at the University of Chicago, or were at one time? Not a whole bunch of different schools, not just making up an event, they just stole events from the University of Chicago. And where are these upcoming events happening? You are an online school. Sorry, you are a fake online school. It doesn't even exist imaginarily. Events like the role and impact of monetary policy in an uncertain economy. That'll be held on December 6th. Is it the setting or the faith that matters the most in faith-based health interventions? That'll also be December 6th at 8.30. Then there's physics with a bang, holiday lecture and open house. That'll be October 8th. I think they knew that they were having too many events on December 6th. But what holiday takes place on October 8th? I mean, yeah, it's the earliest day of the year in which Fire Prevention Week can fall. Which brings us to Loris University. Loris University, average class size 14 to 1. Welcome to Loris University's School of Occupational Safety and Fire Sciences. Whoa, 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 whoa. The performing arts degree was one thing. I do not want to trust my fire inspection to anyone with a degree from Loris University. I speak for the Loris. Unless your degree is actually written on asbestos sheets, do not be responsible for my fire safety. There at Loris, you'll find such distinguished faculty members, faculty members at Loris University or mostly Ph.D. professors who are industry leaders as well, such as Mr. McKenzie, CEO of Swift Technologies, Although you may have seen his picture, available for a nominal fee at a stock photo services company, you may have seen his picture with the company Ashton Tweed. He's the CEO of Ashton Tweed, matching you with life science positions including C-Suite. You might have seen his picture as... Curtis Bales, site superintendent of a Utah housing company. You might have seen his picture as Michael C. Carr, the leading legal firm in Pueblo, Colorado, that can help you with social security disability benefits. You might have seen his picture as Wayne Lambert offering this quote for professional technology innovators. My company recently represented... I'm not going to read the quote. It's just not him. You get what I'm saying? Another Laura's faculty member named Thomas Yule. He He does the same thing as uh, that first guy, the man who goes by many names. Is Thomas Yule pictured? Does Thomas Yule work for the Stevens Group, a building and construction products group? There's his picture. Does he work for GPS Tracker? There's his picture. Does he work for Drive, Profit, Agile Marketing, integrating a new approach? There's his picture. Does he work for MD Clinicals? Does he work for Cobalt Distribution? Not your typical bottled water. The real reason why I bring up Loris faculty member, Thomas Yule, is that his degree is said to come from a state university. Wait, which state university? No, that's how it's listed. A period state university. (laughs) He went to a state university. One of the exact schools, Port Jefferson, doesn't use stock photo. It just rips them off social media. So the business and management professors include a former government minister from Spain. Their legal faculty has a woman from Indianapolis who just had a surprise birthday party. I found that on Facebook. The psychology department is staffed by... A regional director of a New York luxury women's apparel line. Their public administration faculty includes the wife of Bobby Caldwell, who had a top 10 hit with What You Won't Do for Love, later covered by Boys to Men. And now let's hear from Lestar Walker. No, no, no. Lestar Walker, she touts Headway University.
2: The professors at Headway are thoroughly professional and know how to communicate their knowledge and feel experience. Thanks to Headwood University and helping me fulfill my dreams.
0: There is a Lestar Walker listed as living in the US. I found a video of her from a local Milwaukee channel. And it actually can be the same person as in this video. I cannot figure that out. I sent her a message on LinkedIn, and that will really blow the cover off this scam. So listen, I do do actually feel bad for the victims, caveat, emptor or not. Read the New York Times to see how they were taken advantage of. I haven't taken the step of going through all my contacts or LinkedIn to see which ones hold degrees from Wiley University or Nelson Bay University. And you know what? I really don't think I want to know if my appointment tomorrow with the chiropractor is with a guy who has degreed from good old James Harding University. And that's it for today's show. Producer Andrea Salenzi is a proud graduate of the Millard Fillmore School for the Arts. Managing producer Joel Meyer attended Colorado College of Mines, then transferred to Yarnell College of Mimes, which he barely ever mentions. Executive producer Andy Bowers studied wiring at the UCLA Extension Cord Program, no longer affiliated with the Concordia College Extension Cordia Program. The GIST, now accepting applications for the class of 2020, wave a flag for the fighting vexillologists. You can actually, at just you. And can actually get a degree in overall funkiness, though it might refer to the smell, not the rhythm. Thanks for listening. And now, let me give you the number to call 844 387 6962. You know what that is, right? That's the They Might Be Giants dial a song number. So just dial that number and you could hear a song. Just a simple, few step process. Well, you got to wait a day if you're listening on Monday. Okay, don't. Don't do any of that. Just let this play because every Monday, They Might Be Giants debuts a song right here on the Gist. You could hear it at that number after Monday. But now, it's They Might Be Giants with. Starry Eyes.